Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on this edition of The Literary Life is the author of a book that was on everybody's lips and is still on everybody's lips called The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And the author is Disha Filia. And I have to say that as a bookseller, and as someone who has this podcast, I was honored uh, by being able to have a deep dive conversation with Disha when that book came out, uh, I guess over a year ago we spoke, right during the yes, pandemic. Yes. Yes. And the other wonderful thing that's just happened is that Disha is now spending a month in Miami, which is where I am recording from. And we had this lovely lunch last week and I get to speak with her twice in a week by having her as my guest on what I'm calling, what are you reading? And what's so interesting is that when Disha and I had lunch, what I then began to discover about Disha is not only is she a remarkably prolific writer, but she takes that um, reading one step further and feels and understands the importance of what a blurb can do for a book. So I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting this, what are you reading a little bit, to what are you blurbing, Disha, these days? Uh, because she has blurbed so many and read so many books. But first I wanna uh, just ask you, what are you doing in Miami and why are you here? This trip to Miami, first of all, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. Thank you for just being such a friend to writers, uh, Mitchell. Um, I am in Miami because July of last year, like so many of us in this pandemic, I was hanging on by a thread mentally and emotionally. And I thought I need something to look forward to. Um, and Miami has always just been a city where I've been happy, you know? Um, can't beat the sunshine. I'm a Florida native. Um, and so in some ways, even though, you know, Jacksonville and Miami are opposite in the state, very different, it's still coming home for me, um, the pace and just um, the natural beauty. And I thought, Miami, I'm going to go to Miami for a month and I'm not taking any children. <laughs> not, and my children are young adults, not even adult children can come. Um, just me, just writing, just reading in Miami. So that's what brings me here. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. And um, I know you're going to be here a month. Before we launch in, I know you've got some exciting things coming up that you're working on as well. You're going to be taking, uh, you're going to make a big move to Oxford, right? Yes, um, I was um, chosen to be the John and Renee Grisham Writer in Residence at the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss. 
Um, that starts in the fall. I'll have a pretty light teaching load at the university because the purpose of the residency is to write your next book. Um, so I'll be staying at the Grisham House on 77 acres, just idyllic. <laughs> um, and again, Mississippi, so, you know, great weather for the most part. Um, so uh, and you get to visit Square Books as well. Square Books. I, I've already heard that they're great folks and, and that we'll be doing some collaborating, some partnership things with them as well as part of the residency. So I'm excited about that. Cool. And I know you're also working on bringing secret lives to the screen, right? Yes. Um, adapting it for television uh, for HBO Max, working with Tessa Thompson's production company, Viva Mod. Um, and we are in the development stage. I'm really excited. Like literally each day things are happening in that process. And it's it's been wonderful revisiting church ladies, the things that, you know, so many of us love about church ladies and then doing new and interesting things with the characters and giving them a world to, to play in. Uh, so I've been working on that while I'm here, also working on what my next books plural will be and uh, just exploring some options there. What an amazing energy you have. And, and, and you brought that to your reading life as well. So, mm -hmm. so let's dive in. So okay. uh, Disha, what are you blurbing these days? So um, gosh, you know, I, the thing I wanna say about blurbing first is it could be a, its own full-time job. Um, it is, so I'm happy to share these books with you today, but for each one, they're like two that I couldn't say yes to blurbing just cause I didn't have time you know, um, and that's always um, hard to, to say no. So I have my agent tell people no, because I don't want to tell them. Um, but yeah, the blurbs are really important. And so I try to do as many um, as I can. Um, so I, 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 you know, when we started talking about it, I looked at like what I blurb and I've tried to pull it into some cap categories, right? You know, there, there's some themes that emerge. Um, the first one that's kind of fun for me is I call it Black women being messy, aka fully human, you know, so some great novels um, and uh, um, yeah, two novels that um, show Black women in a light that we don't often get to see them. And the first is a book called Post Traumatic by Chantal Johnson. And it's her debut. Um, her main character is a young Black Latina lawyer who is dealing with um, her some trauma from her past. And even though the story has these really um, difficult uh, subject matters at the heart of it, she does it with a lot of laughter and it's ultimately a, a hopeful um, story and you know I my I describe it as stunning and riotous riotous is one of my favorite words and it really is it's like a riot it's a very chaotic book um, but it took me right under and then revived me like only the best fiction can do um, she writes this really delicious meticulous prose and there's a lot of intimacy and, and humor as I said um, I was laughing and crying all the way through. Um, I loved everything about this book. Did you um, say this is Chantel's debut? Yes, that's the other wow. thing that's really stunning about it. Like out the gate, like this is what she did, you know? Um, so yeah, so that was, was one. It's called Post Traumatic. And then an, another one uh, under this category of Black women being fully human, um, Half Blown Rose, by Lisa Cross Smith. And I, after I, I sent the blurb, I texted Lisa and <laughs> I said, I would like, I too would like a 24 year old lover in Paris. <laughs> it's about a story of an American woman who is in Paris remaking her life after her husband's betrayal. Um, and it's this, she has this year where she travels and, and, and dives into her art and she, she, she finds a lover, a young lover. Um, and um, she's another 44, author, right? So 44. Oh yeah, that's right. key. She's a middle age. So this, her, her lover is 20 years younger, same age as her children. Um, and uh, Lily King, another author, describes it as the most exhilarating and sexy American in Paris story I've ever read. And I 
concur. Um, just super sexy. And, but sexy in unexpected ways, like musically it's sexy. There are playlists, sexy playlists. The, the lovers in this book flirt through music and art. Um, and so, you know, I described it as a, a brilliant, sexy, funny masterpiece. Um, it is, she has these deeply intimate worlds and she captures love and lust and longing with a lot of emotional intricacy and verve. And there were times um, when I, as I was reading, my hand was on my heart. <laughs> like it was just such a, a very affecting experience. So uh, I highly recommend Half Blown Rose. So already I can tell that humor is a really important part of your reading experience, right? Yeah, I don't like sentimental books. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. no, no, I understand. You like something with a little bit of a, a little bit of a bite to it. Yeah. Right? Something a little spicy, unexpected, subversive. Uh, you know, that that word shows up in my blurbs a lot. Subversive. Um, speaking of which, um, and and you know, half blown rose could have been in this next category that I call sexy times. Um and the first one I have here is uh the sex lives of African women. Self-Discovery, Freedom, and Healing by Nana Darkoa. And it is a collection of um, interviews um, that Nana conducted with dozens of women across the African diaspora. Um, mm. And I um, describe it as overflowing with candor, vulnerability, and juiciness. Um, she really lovingly gathered um, these stories, and they really will upend our people's assumptions and stereotypes about who African women are. Um, and th these women are mothers, activists, writers, sex workers, um, and they're sharing painful truths, they're uh, evolving glories, and their journeys toward love and freedom. They're trans women, queer, heterosexual, kinky. Um, some of them say no labels at all. Um, they are dealing with dangers, they're dealing with double standards, um, but most of all, um, they're healing. There's a lot of healing in these um, stories. And um, ultimately, I felt like she did this magic of capturing the breadth and depth of the diaspora, but then it's with the intimacy of looking in a mirror. Like, I, I, you know, I felt this connection. It was just really marvelous. She lives in Accra, and she apparently has a blog, which I think many people ought to subscribe to, mm -hmm. called, I love the title of it, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. What a yeah. great, what a great name for a blog. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the next Sexy Times book I have, and I was pronouncing the title Schmutz, but someone corrected me and said that in, in, in Yiddish, it's Schmutz. You're absolutely right. That's the one thing I can tell you. Okay. It is Schmutz. Schmutz. <laughs> okay, Schmutz by Felicia Berliner. Um, and um, Reisel is the, I hope I'm pronouncing the character's name right. Um, like other women in her Brooklyn Hasidic community, she's expected to find a husband through arranged marriage. But she has a secret. She has a secret computer. Um, and through that computer, she is um, watching online pornography at night. Wow. And it's affecting everything. Wow. And so she has a therapist. She's dealing with her own growing sexuality uh, versus her family's expectations of her. Um, this is another tremendous debut novel where you just go, this is your debut, you know, knocking it right out of the park. Um, you know, this character who um, is fully realized, uh, you know, uh, or, or trying to be a fully realized sexual being and a spiritual being. And she's caught between, you know, traditions and then her modern desires and sensibilities. Um, I found it subversive. Uh, clever, juicy, and surprising. It's just a real stunner of a book. This looks amazing, actually, as well. It is. It's one of those where 
you know, there's some of these when um, the request comes in and I would have just told myself no more blurbs, no more blurbs for like a month. Or if it's if, if you say yes, you won't be able to blurb it for two months. But when something like this, the request comes in, it's like whatever they want, I will do, <laughs> you know, whatever yeah, you no. need. Well, well, let's it. talk about talk about your generosity, not not necessarily. We, we know how generous you are, but talk about the importance of blurbs. What did it mean to you as mm -hmm. a writer? And also, yes. you know, as a writer, um, I know what it means as a bookseller when right. we get a blurb. When we get a blurb from someone like you, it gives it credibility and it makes us want to make sure that we display it and that we have a reader in the store read it. But how do you approach the blurb? Mm -hmm. And why do you think they're so important? Sure. You know, I think about what Toni Morrison said um, once. She said the whole purpose of having power is to empower someone else. And so there's power that comes from having a book that has, you know, been successful and has won awards. And every day I think to myself, how do I, how can I use this power? Um, for good and, and to help other people. Um, and thinking about all the ways that other people like my friend Kiese Lehman use power to help me. Um, so that's how I view, you know, the, the, the world of blurbing and the importance of it, that it's literally giving, lending your power and your access to someone else so that their book can be successful too. Um, and, Kiese did that for me. Um, I had a very, I, I've had a very uh, maybe atypical perhaps um, experience with blurbing on the other side in that Kiese is the only person I asked to blurb my book. And I'm not aware that West Virginia University Press asked anyone else to blurb it. To my knowledge, they didn't. So the blurbs that appear on my US, the US version of my book, there's the blurb from Kiese that I asked for and he so generously gave. Um, there's a blurb from Yona Harvey, who is a friend and a, a fellow writer who was um, one of my reviewers. Uh, for folks who don't know, when you publish with a university press, um, they have two peer reviewers who recommend whether or not your book should be published. And, um, they uh, compiled a list. They asked me to contribute a list of people I thought would be good readers for my book. And one of those people was, uh, was Jonah. And they took something she wrote in her peer review and they made that a blurb. And then just before the book came out, um, I was um, being interviewed by a, a fellow writer named Tara Campbell who um, we were talking about, I think one story in particular from the collection and West Virginia University Press pulled a quote from Tara and used that in some of the publicity as well. So it was these kind of organic, you know, um, pieces of publicity. And then the book is going to be coming out starting um, this spring in other countries. So in the UK version of the book, they did the traditional thing of asking a bunch of writers, some of whom I didn't know for blurbs. And they were, many of them were generous and kind and, and uh, available to give me blurbs. Um, but what they also did um, was go to Goodreads and Roxane Gay reviewed my book on Goodreads. And they took an excerpt from that. So, Apparently, there are lots of ways that <laughs> publishers and writers get blurbs. Well, and you're pushing and you're paying it forward. Basically. Yes. Well, yeah. All right. Tell me more. Tell me more. Okay. Last Sexy Times title is called Nobody's Magic by Destiny Birdsong. And Destiny is, uh, this is a novel. Um, Destiny is a poet. And I think poets are fabulous prose writers. Like I love a good novel by, um, or short story by a poet. Um, and it's not just any novel here. It is a triptych. So it's a novel in three parts. Um, and there are three women at um, the heart of these stories, Suzette, Maple, and Agnes. They are three black women with albinism. 
And just a you know, quick aside, this is a gorgeous book cover. And it's the first time that we're aware that a Black woman with albinism is featured on a book cover. And it's absolutely stunning. She's got albinoism, uh, albinism. Albinism, mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Wow, wow, so wow. The, the, the author does, and then so do the three women in this novel. Oh, um, they are all um, from Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and they are at a cross, each different crossroads of their lives. And they're dealing with grief. It deals with strength and self-discovery. And there's a lot of you know, complex social and racial histories here. Um, I blurb this book as devastatingly beautiful, a sexy, searing gift. Um, I fell in love with these characters. Um, and it they are truly, you know, stories of Southern Black womanhood. Um, they're in Louisiana. There are lots of Souths, you know, I'm from Florida. That's a, that's a whole different South, as you know. Um, but, you know, it's de- they're definitely um, Southern Black womanhood stories that I, you know, want to come back to again and again. Um, so this is another gorgeous collection. And again, it's, it's different in that it's three, like three no- novellas in a way, but- they're But they're somewhat interconnected as well. Yes, in that, you know, wow. they're all in the South, Black women with albinism um, and really um, a, a grief goes through all of these stories as well, self-discovery, all of those um, themes. So what's your next category? Black motherhood. <laughs> okay. So, um, now you and, wrote a little bit about that in another life, right? You yeah. wrote a nonfiction book about that. I wrote, so I, with my ex-husband, I wrote about co-parenting. Um, but in my, you know, pre-church lady's life, one of my most sort of, um, well-trafficked stories, I guess, or not stories, pieces of writing, was something I wrote for Bitch Magazine called Ain't I a Mother? And um, and it was about how Black women had been sort of shut out of the mommy memoir craze of the, you know, early, mid-2000s. Um, and I was curious as to why that was. So, um, you know, it's a topic, I mean, as a Black mother, as a Black mother writer, um, you know, something that was personally of interest to me as well. And so this genre, they call it the memoir, um, is one that, uh, that I follow pretty closely. And, um, and so this title, Ain't That a Mother? Postpartum Palsy and Everything in Between by Adiba Nelson. Um, and I love this little tagline from the description of the book from pasties to postpartum and everything in between. No (laughs) one said motherhood would be easy. And the story opens with a diva doing a burlesque show (laughs) with her mom in the audience. Oh, wow. And, um, (laughs) and so as you can imagine, there's a lot of humor in this book. Um, and Adiba is um, Afro-Latina. Um, she was, did not expect to become a mother. She has a complicated relationship with her own mother who is religious. And, um, and so there's a lot happening here. And my take was that it is the most honest, most hilarious, most unapologetic book about motherhood I've ever read. And it's the book that I wish I'd had um, 20 years ago when my mothering journey um, began. And, um, and Adiba tackles so much in this, in this um, book that she's dealing with faith, uh, discrimination. Um, you know, uh, her daughter um, has um, a disability, so there's a lot around that. She's dealing with trauma, love. Um, her love life is, could have been its own book. Um, a lot of loss and ultimately healing. And I, you know, she's such a masterful storyteller. She's also a survivor. She has this really unabashed voice and a really big heart. And I just put it out there. I think with this book, she totally reinvents the motherhood memoir. Totally, totally raised the bar. And her personality seems so big. Apparently, it is. 
I, I'm I'm going to search out this TEDx talk that she did. Apparently, mm -hmm. she did a TEDx talk uh, years ago, and it, I can only imagine what it might be. So, boy, that is a great find. Yes. Thank you. Sure. And then um, one of the first, I this was this the first book I ever blurred? If it wasn't the first, it was one of the first. Um, it's called This Boy We Made by Taylor Harris, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown. Um, so like Adiba, Taylor's um, child also has a disability, um, but the bulk of uh, a big part of the memoir is not knowing what the dis not knowing what was going on, you know, and and you know this sort of uh, process of discovery, and um, and in the process, what she's writing about is just what I call the wonder and weight of the endurance race that is motherhood, and then on top of that, in general, you're mothering in the face of illness and uncertainty. And then as a black woman, and we know that, uh, you know, medical racism in real. And so if motherhood is an endurance race, all of that is downright Olympian for her to, to take on. Um, and she just writes with this really beautiful, crisp prose, and you just fall right into her family's story, which is um, heart-wrenching and hopeful and really unforgettable. Um, you no, know, and I, it just dawns on me that a lot of expectant mothers could also be reading these books, right? Yes. Because yeah. you know, uh, I I think you you hit it you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the disparity with um, you know with the medical community as it comes mm -hmm. to people of color who are dealing with some of these very same issues that everyone else is dealing Absolutely. with. You know, if black um, mother um, maternal mortality rates are higher all of those things are higher for us. So there's, um, you know, so much at stake. Um, and you mentioned, you know, expectant mothers reading this book. You know, I haven't been an expectant mother, mother for many years, but you know, we read all the books that we're told to read, like what to expect, you know? Yeah, right. And, but, and it's kind of scary in a way to read about when it doesn't go the way you think it's gonna go. But I think the importance of these books is that there are no typical experiences and much of life is not the way we anticipate it, but it's not the end of the world. You know, there was a really cool essay that I just read in the New York Times by Frank Brunei, mm -hmm. who, you know, who's going blind apparently. Mm. And what he, what's been happening to him since he's got this disability that's developing is that people are coming up to him and telling him about things that are going wrong in his own life. And you wouldn't know it if you had just seen these people, right? right. So right. nothing ever goes exactly the way, the way we all perceive it to be, right? Everyone right. has, everyone has these, this baggage that, they, that they're carrying on their backs. And the idea that these people that you're blurbing are telling us what's going on in their interior worlds, mm -hmm. uh, and that sense of recognition that we can have can only be helpful. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, and their books like Taylor's and Adiba's, they're real breakthroughs in publishing and a real, you know, hopeful sign for me for publishing because what we got previously in this genre were, you know, tales from, you know, typically suburban upper middle class white women as if, you know, our, their experiences are universal. Um, and so, you know, this is a real, these books represent a real evolution, I think, in understanding that, you know, white womanhood is not a stand-in for womanhood, first of all, um, and then all of the dynamics around class as well, you know, they, I, I used to, you know, in, in the article I wrote for Bitch, you know, Ain't I a Mother, it was like, you know, there would be the sippy cups and Chardonnay, and, and that's not fair of me to make fun of that particular book title, but it represented sort of a mindset and publishing around, you know, what we wanted to, what they, what the story of motherhood was at that moment that it was, you know, we're juggling all of these things and we're chilling with wine. I mean, I'm being very reductive here, but a lot of that got published. No, no, I know what you're you know? saying. I mean, some <laughs> of the more, some of the more popular books that were put forward, even as long as, as short a time as 
seven, eight years ago were, you know, the difficulties of raising your child in Paris yeah. as an expat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. you know, they, and so you're right. I mean, the fact that the fact that we're beginning to see books, you know, which echoes, which, which mirrors the diversity of, you know, what our country really is, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a gigantic breakthrough in public. And the stories are more interesting, you know, that exactly. just, just simply that more interesting. I wasn't, not only could I not relate to some of those other titles, they were boring. The, the diversity of voices, we need to hear that in our lives. It's like, if yeah. you listen to only one kind of music, you know, yeah. you're losing out, you know, if you don't yes. have if you don't have the richness of what our world is really like. I have one more actually that's um, on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, which is the shifting terrain between mothers and daughters. Um, it's called On the Rooftop by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. And um, this, she just writes with this powerful prose. It takes us to some familial familiar, sorry, familiar emotional places with this really original story. And it's full of, you know, ambition. My next category of um, queer fiction, and all three of these books are from male authors of color. That just happened, right? Um, they reached out uh, to me, and I'm so thankful that they did. Um, the first one is a book, great title, Tell Me How to Be by Neil Patel. Right. And it's um, described as a darkly funny and heartbreaking debut novel, another great debut, about an Indian American family confronting the secrets between them. And this is such a special book. Um, one of the things that made it special for me was that the, they're alternating narratives between the mother, the mother and one of her sons, you know, um, which I had never seen that before. Um, and um, I described this book as daring, hilarious, poignant, and impossible to put down. Um, I was reading this book when I was supposed to be reading other things, when I was supposed to be writing. Um, Neil Patel is just a, a fabulous storyteller. And bonus, the, the characters, um, main character, and probably Neil himself, they is like a, they're like huge R and B fans, so there's a lot of R and B in this, a lot right. of R and B music uh, in this book as well. So that was a, a nice little bonus there as too. Um, and then uh, next is Boys Come First, another great title by Aaron Foley, another debut, um, a debut novel. Aaron's previous book was called How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass, which <laughs> you can't beat that title. That's, right? that's great. But uh, Boys Come First is Aaron's debut novel, and it follows three Black gay millennial men looking for love, friendship, and professional success in the Motor City. Um, wow. This, you know, again, I'm a sucker for books that have longing and lust, um, but there is a lot about friendship and family. And it's really a beautiful love letter to Detroit as well. Um, and, you know, I'm rooting for these millennials, um, I say in all their messy magnificence. Um, if, uh, if you're a fan of Terry McMillan and Elin Harris, um, especially you'll rejoice at just how smart and evocative um, the prose is. Um, this, and I said this in the, in my blurb, this book, reading this book made me as a Gen Xer feel just a little bit cooler. I don't know. I just felt, I just felt cooler <laughs> for having read it. Well, it seems really interesting because, you know, in reading his biography, although he lives in Brooklyn, he, he's been on This American Life. Mm -hmm. He writes for The Atlantic, CNN, PBS NewsHour. Mm -hmm. So he has this very broad background as well, which is kind of interesting too. Yeah. And um, one other thing I want to note about this book, it's one of two books I want to talk about today that um, are published by Belt Publishing, which right. is a worker-owned independent press founded in 2013 in Cleveland as a platform for new and influential voices. Um, they look at um, overlooked, they publish overlooked subjects of interest, particularly urbanism and history 
and narratives that upend expectations about the Rust Belt, the Midwest, and its writers. So some really great books coming out of Belt Publishing. We've been finding some really great books, you know, for the store that have coming from from Belt. So we're really happy. And I think there's more opportunity now, given the strength of the smaller presses than ever before. Yep. And they take chances and have a vision, um, you know, in ways that sometimes the bigger ones don't and take chances on, you know, like a book like Church Ladies, which no one else wanted, but uh, they felt that they they saw potential there. So, um, and Belt Publishing, uh is is doing that same kind of uplift work as well cool next um under queer fiction town of babylon by alejandro varela and this is a novel um that's described as the novel about the essential nature of community and maintaining one's own health it's an intimate portrait of queer racial and class identity and a call to reevaluate the ties of social bonds and the systems in which they're for, forged. Um, this was such an intense, um, but like intense in a good way, um, a, a very astute meditation on race, family, class, love, and friendship um, was my observation. And um, Alejandro's wry humor is just like the icing on the cake of this brilliant mm. novel. Um, so while there's this deep intensity, there's also, you know, this wonderful wit that's sometimes unexpected. These next two books are memoir, but they also are specifically um, challenging, uh, reckoning around uh, race, um, this country, evangelical Christianity, all of it. Um, the first one takes a look at all of that through a black feminist lens. Uh, It's called, here's a great title, it's long, Red Lip Theology for church girls who consider tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough by Candace Marie Benbow. Um, And this uh, great, great book is uh, described as blurring the boundaries of righteous and irreverent and it invites us to discover freedom in a progressive Christian faith faith that incorporates activism, feminism, and radical authenticity. Um, Candace is a theologian. She's an essayist. Um, Previously, when um, Beyonce's Lemonade came out, Candace edited and curated what's called the Lemonade Reader. So, you know, critical and thoughtful essays around the, the themes in, uh, in Lemonade, in that album. Um, in this book, in Red Lip Theology, she's exploring heartache, loss, forgiveness, and sexuality. Um, she's empowering women to, who are struggling with feeling loved and nurtured by um, church culture. Um, I describe this book as lush, funny, deeply personal, and it is a gift, a beautiful gift to church girls everywhere and I'm declaring it an instant classic on faith and getting free. And it has the best, I think the best <laughs> title of any book this year. Red and Lip- it also, you know, it also has a forward by someone I've always really mm-hmm. admired, Melissa Harris Perry, yes. who writes so wonderfully too. Yes. So Red Lip Theology, I mm. love it, really love it. And our next Take Me to Church book um, is Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle by Dante Stewart. Um, This is a a debut uh, for Dante. And I love just even the boldness of that subtitle title. He calls it an American Epistle. You know, that's that's really full. And I know Dante and, 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 and he told me he fought for that subtitle. Um, so I'm really proud of him to just announce the importance of this work. Um, he's in it uh, and he's young. He's, he's a young pastor. He's reconciling what it is to be black, Christian and American. And particularly he like Candace have an evangelical Christian background. Um, and so it, this book is described as an 
intimate meditation on coming of age in a time of terror. And that is the terror that was 2016 and the years since, uh, the terror of uh, black people being murdered in the streets. Um, and he was raised in the church um, with a profound faith um, that's ever, it's evolving um, after his experiences in what is truly the violence of the American church. Um, and, you know, sitting in the pews with white evangelicals who were going to vote for Donald Trump. Right. You know, who weren't moved by what was happening to black people at the hands of police. And so he, you know, this book is, is about his, you know, life prior to that, but also how that, that crossroads moment for him um, to try and reconcile those, you know, those beliefs. And so um, what he had been raised to believe and what his experiences were in the church um, with white folks. Um, so my, my blurb, I say, some of us joke about Jesus needing better PR than what today's evangelical church provides. Enter Dante Stewart with unparalleled candor, vulnerability, and love. He takes us along his personal journey to understanding what it is to be Black Christian and American. This book, the, the, the church rather, is long overdue for this kind of reckoning with white supremacy. And Dante has given us a brilliant blueprint for that. Um, so anybody who is professing to be a Christian needs to read this book as well as the rest of us. Um, there's so much vulnerability here too. And, you know, I just want to talk about the memoir part of this too. So much vulnerability from him um, as, a, you know, writing about a boy growing up in, uh, in the South and the racism he experienced as a, he's um, a young father, he's a, a young husband, he's a young pastor. Um, and he brings us into, into those worlds with, with just so much transparency. Um, I love the fact that you go from this to schmutz. Yeah. So you have something from everyone. You have something exactly. for everyone in this list. It's great. Um, and I have one, uh, well, I, I talked about Nobody's Magic, which is a short story collection. Um, and I have another one coming up, but there's a, this short story collection um, is called Stories from the Tenants Downstairs by Sadiq Falana. Um, and I didn't know what to expect um, from this collection, um, but it has a lot of um, tenderness and truth. And I think it gives us, you know, I'm big on, you know, blueprints, you know, it's like a, a wonderful blueprint for the gentrification story. You know, there's a lot of fiction that's dealing with gentrification, a lot of media dealing with gentrification now, um, a lot of art. And, um, you know, I think that these gentrification stories need to be what we have to be in the face of gentrification is bold. Um, and it should honor, as this book does, the complexities of the residents who are struggling to hold on. And so that's what we get in these stories. They're very intimate and familiar, but they're also utterly original um, and funny. And they will, you know, some of them just really shook me to my core. And the voices of the residents that you, you, we, we meet in these stories, you know, their voices just echo beyond the last page. Um, and, and this is another great debut. Is this the one where each, each of the story follows a particular tenant? In, in, a, in this one building. In this one building. Yeah. Okay. So in that uh, way, they're, they're linked as well. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, you know, you've lived in Miami now for a few day, few weeks, but you can see the effects of gentrification everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I call it urban removal is what's going on right well, now. Well, you're being polite because, you know, back in the day, they, it was called urban renewal and somebody was quoted as saying it's Negro removal. And I know it's yeah. more complex here than in, in Miami, but yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's tough. And I know that we've talked a little mm -hmm. bit about some of the stuff you're looking at now about the, yeah. you know the building of expressways right yes. through these vibrant mm -hmm. uh, you know black communities that have mm -hmm. destroyed them and that's happened here as it's mm -hmm. happened everywhere and still had there's a uh, just read a story just two weeks ago about Charleston it's happening there yes. as well 
if the people who had the power, economic, social, and political, decided that we're going to do this in an equitable way, it would be done in an equitable way, yeah. you know? No, but and I, th I think that leads exactly into what we're talking about, because you can equate power and story, right? Mm -hmm. So as more people begin to tell their stories, mm -hmm. and more people begin to understand these mm -hmm. stories, they mm -hmm. develop a kind of power as well because mm -hmm. their, their stories become so powerful as well. My next category is, I call it memoir plus. You know, sometimes a memoir um, is really intentionally not just about, about the writer, but has a larger aim. Um, Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood is, manhood is such a book by um, Frederick T. Joseph. And, um, Fred, Frederick makes the case, it's a call to action for all of us. And he makes this call through telling us his own turbulent and tender life story. He shows us what patriarchy costs all of us and precisely what's at stake if we don't dismantle it. Um, and so there's a beautiful blend of his own story with larger stories from the, you know, from the culture, from the cultural, different cultural moments. Um, and I just, it made my heart glad to see a black man talking about, you know, toxic masculinity and transphobia and how, um, you know, so many benefit from patriarchy. Um, and, and there's work for all of us to do in, um, in upending it. Um, so it's so much more than a memoir here. Um, similarly, oh, I'm sorry, were you gonna say something? No, go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Um, Kabar, an immigrant journey by Madhushri Ghosh. Ghosh, making sure I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and this is a food memoir, but it's also personal narrative that brings together the global journeys of South Asian food through immigration, migration, and indenture. Um, and in addition to telling her own uh, story about, you know, her family of origin, as well as her, um, you know, her marriage that ended in divorce, she focuses on chefs, home cooks, um, food stall owners, and she, there, she is looking at the questions of what it means to belong and what does belonging in a new place look like in the foods carried over from the old country? So it's a, it's a book, it's a memoir that um, is full of her memories and reflections, but it's global in scope and deeply intimate. So it's a real treasure of a book and the food. And, <laughs> and I like that it's from a university press too. It's from the University yes. of Iowa Press, which and is great. Follow Madhu, um, again, Madhushri Ghosh um, uh, on Instagram. And I, I don't know if she posts on Twitter as much, but Instagram, her food photography. Yeah, I'm going to get too hungry. Will, get too <laughs> she hungry also does great videos too. Um, but yes, yeah, so Kabar, an image, immigrant journey. And let's see, the next book I have under Memoirs Plus or Memoirs and More, um, Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience and Restoration by Tracy Lewis Giggetts. Um, this, this book was born out of an essay that she wrote um, on Black Joy for the Washington Post. And it resonated in a way that she did not anticipate very positively. Um, and so in this book, she's writing about Black joy um, as not just a weapon of resistance, but a tool for resilience. Um, it's a collection of lyrical essays. And I, um, you know, that, that to show us that um, puts Black culture in a context that's not just about trauma. Um, it's really a gift. I felt like it was a gift to Black folks. It's very... Um, uh, another blueprint, that's my word, <laughs> blueprint and subversive. It's really a blueprint for healing and nourishing our minds and our spirits. Um, I feel like so many of the books I've been reading lately are books that in one way or another are telling us how to get free. They're showing us that there's a different way um, 
they're showing us that we're less not as alone as we thought in some of our experiences and um tracy's book is a really good example of that well and literature of resilience is so important now i think mm -hmm. and that's what this seems to be too yep and my last memoir um is dreadful sorry which i think is a great title <laughs> Dreadful Sorry, Essays on American Nostalgia by J Jennifer Nyslin, if I'm saying it right. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot that I loved about this book, but we need more books by white people writing about whiteness. It, it just doesn't happen. And writing about it in a way that um, is really honest, um, and doesn't do further harm, which I could talk about that as a whole episode. But um, these are really candid essays. They're personal essays and also um, cultural essays around American nostalgia that focus on um, her working class Rust, Rust Belt family history. This is another one from Belt Publishing. Um, what does it mean to be nostalgic for the American past? And because especially when this feeling has been co-opted by you know, far right conservatives with, you know, which is like the horrible make America great. And it's associated and when our past has been associated and is full of violent periods, um, you know, where white supremacy was even more dominant than it is now. And so she's asking the question, can a liberal white woman still be sentimental about her childhood and her, you know, working class upbringing? And, you know, I just appreciate that in this moment where we're doing sometimes half-assed, but when we're trying to do this reckoning around race and the past and the present and the future, um, that she's doing, she's looking at whiteness and family and history. Um, and the essays are really raw and revelatory and real. And I just think they're everything good storytelling should be. Oh, I look forward to that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think but I, I think what we're, I think it's that old notion of truth and reconciliation. I think the idea is that you can be nostalgic, but then you have to reconcile your nostalgia yeah. with what life was actually like. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I hear one more thing about, you know, we, we you know how wonderful the fifties were or the sixties. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly for who. And, and then you know, even you know, you start you start understanding what you're being taught in school. Mm -hmm. and how dishonest, you know, the, the teaching of history has been for so many of us. And, you know, and then you see some really stunning books. I read a book recently called The Color of Money, which, mm. you know, talks about, you know, just, you know, laws that were put into place that after World War II kept uh, people of color from developing any kind of wealth. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, of any kind of wealth whatsoever. So yeah. when you look at the disparity now, it, it was just never a very equal playing field, which we all know. And you know, I forgot, I have one more in this category. It was the one that I, um, I sent to you this morning. Um, the movement made us. And I okay, almost You were telling me about that at lunch, actually. Yes, like, and I, it really was so recent. It was so recent, I totally right. forgot it. Um, but it's written by a father and son, David Dennis Sr. and David Dennis Jr. Um, and they're in, the, in it, the voices go back and forth in the book. It's an oral history and a memoir chronicling um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and its legacy that's embodied in Black Lives Matter. Um, David Dennis Sr. was a core architect of the civil rights movement. This is his first time um, speaking out and sharing, uh, and he's sharing here his recollections with his son, David Jr., who's a journalist who is um, working on the front lines of change today. Um, and what I said about this extraordinary book is that we don't talk enough about what the civil rights movement cost those who survived it and the people who love them. I was telling you about the mother-daughter mm -hmm. uh, dual memoir of the civil rights movement in Jacksonville, where you're yes. from. Mm -hmm. And it's called Freedom in the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights. And that's the one by Tanana Reeve Du mm -hmm. with her mother, Patricia Stevens Du. 
And it's a very, it covers a very similar kind of a territory, which I think is a brilliant, you know, kind of a brilliant way of approaching it. Yes, I have to check that out. Um, in part, as you said, because that's my hometown. So, yeah, exactly. and I, and, and you know, so much history gets lost. Like I had never heard of that book or, I mean, I know, um, you know, the daughter in that duo, but not the mother, like that's a yeah. name that, you know, we should have been taught in school, but we weren't. Um, thank you for that. Some of the stories that this elder Dennis tells, you know, we may think we know those moments in history, but we don't know it the way he's telling it. We don't know the backstory. We don't know the regrets. We don't know the mistakes that were made. Um, you know, this book answers the questions, what was sacrifice? What was lost? What does trauma do to a body, to a family? Um, and it takes us into these intersections of history, memory, activism, and parenthood where tenderness lives alongside the terror and violence of America's broken promises, yesterday's and today's. So in this book, we're traveling the emotional distance between a son's searching and a father's regrets to arrive ultimately, hopefully, to a healing place. And that's The Movement Made Us. Yes. Fantastic. And then this book, I didn't have a, you know, a partner for it. It's, it's all by itself, um, but it's last but certainly not least of the books that I have blurbed um, in the last six months to a year, What the Fireflies Knew by Kai Harris. And um, this is a coming of age novel by, um, not by, but about um, KB a little girl named KB who's almost 11 and she and her sister are trying to make sense of their new life with their estranged grandfather after their father dies and their mother disappears. Mm. And so this is another fabulous debut. It's really just a little gem of a novel and it is full of the beauty, tenderness and poignancy of black girlhood. Um, you know, so much of the story just you know, took me back to, to my own childhood, um, but it's a, a great coming of age novel. Beautiful. So those are the ones that I have blurbed and literally yesterday, the last one I blurbed was a book called A Calm and Normal Heart. Um, it's a short story collection that is sharp and sexy and endlessly surprising. Um, Chelsea Hicks is the author. Um, she's a native writer um, and uh, the story titles and, and even within the stories themselves, she is using um, language from different um, native, native languages that you know, appear like they don't translate easily to English. So we see them as you know, symbols um, that are just sort of embedded into the stories as well. Um, and there's an electric blend of like playfulness and intensity in her prose that really just lights up the character's desire. Um, and these are really like, I, I wrote in the blurb that these stories are to be savored. That's what I felt as I was reading them. Like, you know, each one, I didn't want them to end. And I have to give a shout out to Unnamed Press, who was yes. the press there. They mm -hmm. do a marvelous job. You can't go wrong reading reading one of the books that they publish. Um, I have my work cut out for me, Disha. You really, this is, every one of these books is one that I want. I got one more for you. I got one more. Oh, go, last go, one. tell me. All this right. is what I started reading last night that I'm going to blurb. It is called Discalcula. I'm sorry, Discalculia. What, Latin maybe? Discalculia. A love story by a, a love story of epic miscalculation by Camon <laughs> Felix. Isn't every love story? Isn't every love story a love story of miscalculation? <laughs> but get this plot twist: it's a poetry collection. Oh, beautiful! <laughs> but oh, I and, and I, you know, this like forgive me, Camon, if I'm saying if, if I'm wrong about this, but it, it reads like prose poems. Sure. But when I looked up, you know the the press on it it's described as a poetry collection yeah and no but prose poems can be poetry so that's yeah. cool and so sometimes there's just like a phrase on a page and then there's a block you know so 
but definitely it's poetry, you know, it, it reads as that, but right. there are the, the blocks of text as well. Um, and I've never read anything like this before in my life. <laughs> so wow. the, it'll be fun to write the blurb. And I don't know people realize that it can, sometimes it takes me an hour to write a blurb. Seriously, like that, those, like maybe three sentences, it will take me an hour. No, well, you, you were, you know, it's funny. Um, I just looked up. So dyscalculia is actually a disability where you can't learn arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now I know what my problem is. <laughs> so like dyslexia, dyscalculia. Right, 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 right. Disha, this is amazing. Thank you. This is you. what a great list. And so for everyone listening, this list will be on our website. It'll be on the page for the podcast. We're going to have them displayed in all our stores. And I think that uh, Disha is going to bring thousands of readers to all these books, which I'm so happy about. I hope so. I hope so. This has been fun talking about my favorite topic, books. <laughs> I know. And I know you're leaving in a couple of weeks, but let's have lunch again soon. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait to come back and see right. you. Thank you, Disha. Thanks, Mitch.